This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. You're listening to C-Suite Success Radio with your host and executive coach, Sharon Smith. If corporate success is your goal, C-Suite Success Radio offers you informative interviews with experts that will help you shorten your learning curve and accelerate your momentum to higher achievement. C-Suite Success Radio makes it simple and easy for you to tap into the wisdom of other successful business people who know the path you're traveling. If you're ready for success in corporate America, welcome to your new home at C-Suite Success Radio. And now, time for your host and C-Suite Executive Coach, Sharon Smith. Welcome to this week's episode of C-Suite Success Radio. I am your host, Sharon Smith of C-Suite Results. Each week we focus on success, a word we all know and something we strive towards, but not a word that's easy to define. All of our topics and guests are aimed to help you achieve the goals you've set for your organization and for yourself as a leader, but more importantly, to help you accelerate the pace of your success. On today's show, we have Jothi Rosenberg founder and CEO of Dover Microsystems, a commercial spin-off from Draper Laboratories in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Jathi has run several large government research programs in cybersecurity to develop a processor immune to cyber attacks. On an entrepreneurial front, Jathi has founded eight startups overall in Silicon Valley and Boston. Jathi received his PhD in computer science from Duke University. He has written three technical computer-oriented books, but his real pride and joy is his memoir called Who Says I Can't? that recounts how he used extreme sports to recover from two bouts with cancer, an amputation, and having a lung removed, all as a teenager, when he was also told he had zero chance of survival. 44 years later, he's still very active in those extreme sports, uses many of them to raise money for important causes, and is a motivational speaker to include his TEDx talk, Who Says I Can't? After the Boston Marathon bombing, Jathi created the Who Says I Can't Foundation, to help those struck down with a disability get back into high-challenge activities to rebuild their self-esteem. Let's listen to the conversation I had with Jothi and learn how he defines success and the lessons he has learned to help you gain the edge you're looking for. I'm very excited to have Jothi Rosenberg on the phone with us today. Jothi, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I'm, I'm very happy to be here with you. I always like starting off with having my guests tell us about you because the bio is the bio and people can read all about you, but hearing from your own words and hearing your own passion and what you're focused on right now, I think means a lot. So tell us what it is you're focused on, passionate about working on these days. Well, I know it's a conflict in terms to say, to say that you're focused on more than one thing. I always say to people, yeah, if you're focused on more than one thing, you're cross-eyed, but I do kind of divide life up into what I'm working on career-wise, profession-wise, and the sort of outside-of-work passion. And the outside-of-work passion I'll talk about first is I created a foundation the same year that the Boston Marathon bombing occurred because I'd already been thinking about it. But that incident created a lot of amputees in particular, a lot of injuries, but a lot of amputees that were, you know, these were people that cared about the marathon but they cared about running or they had a friend running or something like that. And then to have this random, awful uh, terrorist incident blow off 
one of their legs or both of their legs. And I thought it was so horrible. And I know from personal experience, because I lost my leg when I was 16, that you're almost your big, biggest casualty is not the physical, but it's the self-esteem. You know, suddenly it's hard to walk. Um, maybe you're on crutches for a long time. Even when you do get fitted for a prosthetic leg, uh, you're self-conscious about it at first. Things, sports in particular, that you love to do, you feel like you can't do. And, and in fact, it's that word can't that was thrown in my face so much when I was younger that forced me to start saying, who says I can't? And, and it's not a question. You have to say it with that emphasis on who says I can't. You know, people were telling me, well, you'll never ski. You'll never play hockey again. You'll, you know, whatever. Same thing is happening to, to these people that were in the marathon bombing. What the foundation set about to do, and it has found a, a niche uh, that's pretty, I think it's unique. We look at people who have uh, a disability of some sort and have an attitude and are healthy enough, enough otherwise to participate in a high challenge physical activity a sport of some sort. And then we'll help them get the equipment and then the coaching to use that equipment that adapts that sport to them so that they can get good at it. And what naturally happens to everybody is that they start to actually see progress and that starts to make them feel better. And then they see more progress and they start to rebuild that self-esteem, which is so critical. You know, you can't live without self-esteem because it literally means how you feel about yourself. Low self-esteem is extremely dangerous. A lot of people feel really bad about themselves and do something bad to themselves before there's, you know, other people have a chance to sort of intervene. And then you want to build them back up, make them feel better about themselves. That helps build their self-confidence and that carries over to everything. And I was, and I'm going to link this now to to the other part of my of my life because I'm right now we just started what is for me my ninth startup. I've decided not to use the term serial entrepreneur. I've decided to use the term incorrigible entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> I like you can imagine that when you've done this a bunch of times, you've worked with venture capitalists, you've worked with a bunch of employees at the various companies, customers, every, everything that you have to, to, to do, you can imagine that there are challenging times. The thing for me is that I can compare it to the challenging times that I had in my teenage years when first I lost my leg and then three years later the cancer spread and I had to have a lung removed and the doctor said, oh, by the way, you have zero chance of survival. Those were rough times. And no startup is ever that rough. And so you can put things in perspective pretty nicely that way. Who was it in those days that helped you get through that time? I can't imagine as a teenager being able to just prop yourself up out of something like that and say, yes, who says I can't? You're right. I went through the natural set of, uh, of emotions of, of shock, depression, feeling sorry for myself, all of those things. I know a lot of people probably want to know, you know, hear that, oh, I got spiritual and all that. It kind of went the other way. I actually had the reaction that, oh, I see. It's actually completely up to me. I have to figure this out 
because everyone I asked said, you can't do this and can't do that. What I learned was that, oh, you know what? If I just focus on something and then work hard at it and keep working hard at it, I will get better at it. And I started to set really modest little goals. So this is going to sound a little bit silly. First thing I had to perfect to some extent was walking on crutches because back then they didn't fit you with a prosthesis for six months. If I'm going to get around, it's on crutches. You figure out, or at least what I figured out was, okay, set some modest goals. For crutches, what it was was I'll help the family out by walking the dog every day after school. At first it was, and my parents encouraged that. So my parents took a really nice tack here and they they seemed to somehow they're both physicians and maybe that helped but they seemed to somehow instinctively know how much to challenge and then how much to support we lived about two miles from school and it was a bus ride and the buses were pretty tricky to get on and off so they said okay here's a case where we're going to really help out and they decided to replace my right leg with a Ford Maverick car. <laughs> and, and then the other, but then they said, well, the walking the dog is a great idea. Why don't, you know, definitely, why don't you do that? And I think that they probably thought I would just go to the field and kind of walk them, walk them around the field once or twice. But I found this place not far from us that I could get to in my Ford Maverick that was pretty rough terrain. And the dog loved it. He was a, you know, healthy, good size golden retriever love to run. We would go up and down these hills and I just, I, I naturally, my arms were getting stronger. My hands, my palms were getting tougher. We would go further and further and further. And that was it. I mean, th this was significant because one of the places we would go to in the summer where there are pretty good sized hills, all of which are hikeable and they seemed off limits. They seemed inaccessible. So after making this progress, I was ready to tackle those. They were really challenging. And, you know, I got sore arms and the skin rubbed a little bit from the crutches and also had to learn how to uh, adapt things there. So, you know, then I tried skiing and, and, and I, I could see that there, that one was going to be challenging. I was going to have to work really hard but I could see the potential there. And th th this is what I think happens with somebody with a disability who's given a chance to figure out what they love, what they want to do, and then to go work hard at it. And they're willing to work harder than everyone else. I'm convinced of that. And you talk about that in your TED Talk. That's the exceptionalism that you talk about, right? Yeah. Some of the listeners might have heard of the um, tiger lady. Amy Chu is a professor at Yale and her husband. And they wrote a, a, a book and an op-ed piece in the New York Times about how minority groups in certain s situations excel beyond the group in which they're, you know, the majority group in which they're immersed. And And we've all seen this. There's Jewish groups in Europe that kind of brought a lot of attention on themselves because they were excelling um, so well. Certainly it's been true of uh, Asian Americans and anyway, lots of groups. So they talked about three traits and I, that it got me to thinking that and I was really starting to see three traits that apply to people with disabilities. And it's what I talk about in that, in that TED Talk. And the first is insecurity, which is easy to understand. But at first, you won't understand why it's actually a positive trait. You know, you feel insecurity because you're getting stared at, 
There's things that are really hard. Even after 44 years of using crutches, there's still things that are really challenging. Like, for example, carrying a case of wine. Really hard to do on crutches. And important to not drop. Yes. And important to have. And important to have. I agree with all of that. (laughs) So you get this sense of insecurity. The second trait is exceptionalism. Now, this is kind of a weird trait to think of as being right next to insecurity. Well, first, let me explain what I mean by exceptionalism. And it comes from starting to have success at something that you want to do well, have worked hard at, have focused hard at. And you may not be better than your uh, I call people, you know, like you, Sharon, and and lots of other people, temporarily able-bodied. You might not do better than the temporarily able-bodied people around you, but you do better than they expected. And so you start to get from them a sense of, oh my God, you're doing great. And you start to feel that that's pretty exceptional. Combination of these two is what creates drive. You feel exceptional. That's great. You want more of that. But you constantly feel insecure because you're constantly reminded of uh, what it is that what disadvantage it is that you have. So that creates drive. It's just going to they're going to keep feeding each other and they're going to keep pushing you. And an example of that is people say to me, why do you go year after year after year, 23 years now and do the Alcatraz swim? And the answer is. Everybody else, by the way, almost everybody treats it as a one-time checkbox bucket list item. But I keep going back year after year. And the reason is, is that it's like a pilgrimage. It recharges my batteries. And it's because, you know, when I'm wearing my prosthetic leg, the amount of distance I can walk is kind of defined by how long the skin can handle being in plastic and getting, you know, rubbed a little bit. You want to walk less. Okay, so you've got this drive that makes you go do these things and keeps pushing you. The third trait is discipline. And I've kind of hinted at this a couple times, the focus and willingness to work hard and keep at something. This is all about discipline. I find that it comes naturally to people who have a disability. You you see this in lots and lots of people. Did you know that Jack Nicholas had polio? No, did not know that. So did Alan Alda. Oh, wow. So did... Judy Collins. So did Neil Young. All of them had polio. The reason that there's so many names that you can think of in the polio category, you know, including Franklin Roosevelt, is because uh, some very detailed and well-respected studies were done of them and how they treated or thought about their bodies and how they overcame limitations in their bodies and how that carried over to other aspects of their lives, and they excelled beyond their peer group. You know, discipline comes naturally. You combine these three things, a healthy amount of insecurity combined with exceptionalism that creates drive, all of which is guided by a strong sense of discipline. You're going to succeed at anything. And, And so when I was giving this talk to an audience of 600 people in Paris, I was speaking not to people with disabilities. I was speaking to this able-bodied audience and saying, now why, if you know this, why would you wait until you have a disability to start to really exceed beyond your own perception of your abilities? Why would you wait until you have a disability? Why not start on that now? 
fantastic question, and I would love to know how do you take someone who doesn't necessarily have the same elements but could get the same results if they learned how to implement similarly? For somebody who's able-bodied, for now anyway, they're able-bodied, what can they do to try to grab hold of these traits and turn them to their advantage and do really well at whatever it is they want to do? There's almost a synonym to insecurity, which is being humble. Or there's a, is it antonym that's the opposite? Mm -hmm. Is that right? And that would be arrogant. I have found my entire life that arrogance destroys relationships. I think it's destroyed companies. There are still people that are CEO of companies that are arrogant, but I think they're pretty routinely despised and their companies probably could have done a lot better if they, uh, if they weren't arrogant or if they got out of the way and let somebody who's not arrogant take over. Being humble is probably a good start on uh, insecurity. If you're not already, just the right amount of, of insecure. The way you get a feeling of exceptionalism is to not set ridiculous goals and say, I gotta work hard until I achieve that goal. That would be like somebody saying, all right, I've, I've gotta do a marathon, so okay, I guess that means that tomorrow I'm, I'm gonna try to run 26, miles. That's not how it works, right? Figure out how to break the thing that you want to really get good at down into pretty small achievable goals and work at each one of those. I had a couple of nephews that wanted to do the Alcatraz swim this year. Uh, 10 years ago, one of them had done it and he was like 19, 18, extremely arrogant. And he said, you know, uh, I know how to get ready for that. And his whole goal was to beat his old Uncle Jothy in the swim, and he lost to me by 10, 10 minutes. Oh, wow. At the time, I would have been 50, and he was 19. And he, he had two he, legs. He decided he to one. do it again this year, except this time he said, how do you train for it? And I, I told him, and I gave him workouts that started in February and led up till the June event, and he's now 30, and he beat me by three minutes. I'm 61. He beat me by three minutes. He was happy. And I was happy because I thought he ought to beat me by a few minutes. <laughs> and he's not arrogant anymore. It's amazing. He's a third-year surgery resident at Stanford, and he's not arrogant. Imagine that. Fantastic. So if you get those two working for you, I think the, the discipline falls naturally into place. Yeah, setting those goals, you have to be disciplined if you're going to reach them. Your, your nephew wasn't going to get where he got if he wasn't disciplined in following the routine that you gave him. You weren't going to be, you weren't going to get where you wanted to get when you were out there with your dog in the fields, you know, without discipline and, you know, small goals. How far can I get today, right, before you were able to do any real hiking, regardless of one leg or two legs? I mean, it takes, it takes discipline. I think startups are, are in a funny way, kind of, similar to this, because very naturally, you've got a series of small goals. There's things that you just can't worry about and therefore don't and shouldn't worry about when you're a a five-person company, a 10-person company. Of course, there's some very big things you, you do need to worry about, and you need to stay very focused on them. And I'm sure you know this, Sharon, that the biggest enemy of startups is lack of focus. If you're not focused, you will quickly spread a five-person, 10-person team way too thin. They won't accomplish what they're supposed to accomplish. It's the death of, I would say, the vast majority of, of startups that fail is lack of focus. 
How do you tell, how do you help someone with that? Someone who wants to start something or somebody who's tried before and maybe it didn't go so well, but they haven't given up yet. How do you help someone learn focus? I think Jeffrey Moore did a pretty good job of coming up with a, a nice, easy metaphor vehicle for helping people with the with the most important part of focus, which is who are my customers? And his his books are Crossing the Chasm and Inside the Tornado. Those those two books in particular. I, I mean, I haven't read a ton of marketing books, but those two, if I was going to only read one or two marketing books, I would I would start there. His metaphor is bowling pins. I can't even remember how many total bowling pins there are. I think it's 10. It is 10. Okay, thank you. You really can only hit the front pin with your ball. If you really got a good spin, you might be able to, you know, but most people hit the front pin and maybe from the side, but, or maybe just smash it, you know, smash in the center. Point is, is that there needs to be a bowling pin, a vertical market, well-defined, that's relatively small. Maybe it's a 50 to $100 million segment. Um, why is that? So if it's more than $100 million, then the, then the 800-pound gorillas will care about it, and they'll already be there, or they're coming in, and they're going to make life difficult for you. Below $50 million isn't big enough to sort of say you've proven anything if you become a major player in that market. But over 50 and under 100 is big enough that you can say, I'm dominant in this, in this new market segment, and it's growing. You figure out how to come up with a vertical market that is defined in such a way that all the people in that market segment, all the companies, are going to have very similar organizations, very similar people in this, with the same title who go to the same meetings and, and, and respond to the same Google AdWords. And therefore, your marketing dollars go further. The product that they want is going to be relatively the same set of requirements. This is true, by the way, whether it's a SaaS application or a piece of hardware or a, a new service. I'm not thinking of businesses outside of my complete domain of knowledge, like sure. restaurants. I have no idea how you do it there. The bowling pin strategy, you just use that to keep reminding everyone in the company, even if you think that we, that we could apply our basic product, our technology horizontally. And, and it's the most common thing that, it, that technologists and engineering people think of. They think, oh my God, I've got this very general technology. I'm going to apply it to very broadly. You end up boiling the ocean because the companies are all different. The requirements are different. The the way in which you have to reach them and market to them is different and you run out of money. I think that's the first most important thing is to understand the, the bowling pin, understand how to uh, create a very well-defined uh, vertical market segment and then go after that. Did you learn all of this through trial and error, or did you have a mentor over the years that has helped you gain this kind of insight and knowledge? I learned this through error, error, and error first. And then I, I started to try to learn from people, read more. I think that's where I finally started to get a little more humble about um, the, the startup uh, world. Believe it or not, you can actually learn something from venture capitalists who've done this a, a number of times. I started to learn a lot from, from them and then tried it a few times and, oh my God, it worked. 
And so that was the uh, <laughs> that was where the trial finally came. But honestly, my instinct in the first couple of startups was to apply a technology that we'd come up with horizontally and to boil the ocean. Yes, I understand that methodology. I've tried that myself as well. And it really does not work, does it? No. But it does take some trial and error, and sometimes we just have to learn the hard way. Some of us are a little hard-headed when we are given advice. I know people have told me over the years, you need to, you know, you need to narrow down who you serve and all of that. And I said, no, I can serve everyone. And yes, I understand that I can't really, and I have started to heed that advice, and it's definitely working out better that way. Good. What would you say is the best piece of advice you were ever given? I think that the the bigger companies that I've ever interacted with that I admire and respect are companies that I would say have a very high human resources, high HR IQ. They first and foremost treat their people extremely well. And I learned this from a guy who was my boss sort of after I'd done my first startup. I took a little side thing for four four years at a big software company called Borland International that was out in California. We worked very hard on making sure that we did hiring well. We had really good incentives, and that means the incentives really rewarded people for exactly what we wanted to get most out of them, that the things that they did were what mattered most to the company, and therefore it made most sense to reward them for that. And it all boiled down to three things, I think, that became sort of my management philosophy. One is treat people uh, like adults. Wow, that sounds really obvious, but you'd be amazed. The second one is assume the best in every situation. Again, you think, well, that's common sense. But how often have you heard through the grapevine or somebody sends you an email and it really sounds like they need a, a whooping and you find out that if you go at them, assuming the worst, you're going to get the worst. And then you might find out that, oh, you blew it because that wasn't what they meant or they were being their opinions were being misrepresented. The third one is actually a, a saying that uh, Ronald Reagan used to say about the Russians, which was trust but verify. That is an unnecessary kind of third modifying uh, part of the philosophy that you got great people, but your company's getting bigger and not everyone's as fantastic. And you're going to have to find out who's struggling or who's kind of gone off in the wrong direction or uh, somebody that has got made some bad judgments. And you got to be careful because, you know, individuals can hurt the company. So those are my three philosophies. I'm really glad you brought up assume the best because I am so guilty and I can't figure out why I still do this. I know better that I often assume the worst and there are times where I catch myself doing it and have to I stop myself going why? Why are you going there? Why are you assuming this when it probably isn't true and I I know better and it's still my often, and I hate to say it, but it's true, and I'll say it because I'm sure I'm not alone, it's still often my natural inclination is to assume the worst, and it drives me crazy that I go there, and I'm really glad you brought up assume the best. Let's switch gears slightly. We've been talking, you've provided great tidbits and and wisdom and stories and so much for listeners to, to chew on and think about, and for myself as well. 
But I have to ask the question that I ask everybody, and I'll be very interested to hear your answer about your actual, the definition of success. And you can tell us whether it's a general definition, whether it's specific to business or life. I'm not trying to sway you one way or the other. But when you think about I've been successful in X or that was successful or I'll know it's a success when, what has happened or what has to occur? What does that look like for you? What is success? Early on in doing these startups, one of the VCs, one of the investors in one of my companies looked me right in the eye and he said, I'm very concerned that you're not greedy enough to be successful as a CEO of one of my companies. That was sort of a shot across the bow that made me realize that I didn't want him to be an investor of my company uh, any longer than necessary. Of course, I, I was stuck with him for a while. Clearly, there's people like that, people like Scaramucci, who whose fondest wish for Sean Spicer was that he go off now and make tons of money. There's people who, who measure success that way. I really never have and never will. What I love more than anything, is for a, a really well-oiled team that succeeds in the sense of we're able to grow the company because there's always more to do than, than we can do with the ta- team we have. We want to expand. We want to do more. We are all passionate and excited about what we're doing. So it's this combination of a lot of passion for the thing we want to do. We're doing it well because we're growing. We've got a team that's firing on all cylinders. And to me, that right there is success. It's everything that I love. We're doing something important and that alone is satisfying, but you don't get to keep doing it if you're not making money so that you can keep the team, grow the team. You're not going to do it well without a great team. So you got to start with an extremely carefully crafted, carefully hired team So building a team by itself is satisfying and can lead to success. Having a great idea, concept that is important, passionate, that alone is satisfying, but it's not enough. And everybody operating on all cylinders, that we're we're focused, that we're working hard, those three things lead to success. I know it sounds like all of my ideas are in threes, but it's just true. (laughs) Lots of things in this world are on threes. It works very well. So I think it's wonderful. And you're giving us three times as much information as if you just had one. (laughs) All right. We are going to be running out of time here shortly. You've told us about, it was Jeffrey Moore. You told us about the books that Jeffrey Moore wrote, excuse me. You told us about the books that Jeffrey Moore wrote that you really liked on marketing. What are a couple other books in the business or personal development world outside of yours, the Who Says I Can't, which I definitely think everyone should take a look at, and I'll put that information on your book and your foundation definitely in the show notes for anybody who wants to learn more about those. But I want to know what other books you would recommend from a personal development or business perspective. There's one. It's a little monograph that I love. It's called, and I don't, rem- the, the author's last name is Fox. I don't remember his first name. Um, it's called How to Become a CEO. First got this book and read this book before I was a, a CEO. And it has all kinds of, now there's some things in there uh, I, I don't agree with, but it's got sort of one to two pages on each of his sort of rules. My favorite is learn to do something hard and lonely. And I understand that completely. Now, having 
been a CEO several times. There are things that are completely, you know, up to you as the CEO. And there's there's sort of no one except maybe your golden retriever and your spouse. Yeah, you can talk to your your team. I don't keep anything from my team, but they still basically are saying, well, good. Hope you do well at that because it's up to you. You know, you. So for me, open water swimming is sort of the how I learned to do something hard and lonely. Swimming is uh, not a social sport. It's very hard to talk. And when you do open water swimming, you're pretty much not even in sight of any other human being most of the time. It's a good thing to to practice the uh, the hard and lonely. But he's got great little anecdotes, pieces of advice, and uh, I highly recommend it. And it's a book you can read in probably a couple hours. It's sort of one of these short monographs. That's perfect. That's my kind of book size. I have a very hard time reading for long periods of time. I, I don't know what it is, but when I start reading, I always get tired as soon as I start reading, even if it's interesting topics. So it's hard for me to get through the longer books, and I like the shorter ones. So that is a great one. Thank you so much. I want to leave the conversation by wishing you a slightly belated birthday wish. You just had a birthday, so happy birthday. Thank you. I Thank you. It, it was fun. hope it was a good one. Were you with your grandchildren? I I, I was. I um. Uh, that's another, you know, great highlight for me right now is that I have uh, one new, fairly new grandson who's 11 months old and one who's two months old. And each of my three kids has now had a boy. So there's there's three grandkids from through from my three kids, three grandsons from my three kids. Lots of fun. They change so fast. It's like you got to see them frequently to keep up. Thank God for um, instant messenger and Facebook so that we, we get to see videos and pictures and, and we FaceTime with them if they're not, uh, nearby. Yeah. How times have changed for grandparents to be able to stay in touch with their grandkids. It's awesome. Well, next time we talk, let's spend some time discussing, uh, Dover Microsystems, your newest startup and some really cool stuff you're doing with that. We unfortunately aren't going to have the opportunity today, but I would love to have more of a conversation around what you're working on. I think it's super important to the security industry, cybersecurity. You've got a lot of really great things happening, so I'm looking forward to sharing that with, with our listeners and with others out there. I think you've got a lot going on, a lot of good stuff going on. Well, we talked about that. I would, that would be great. I would love to do a, a, a second uh, go with you to talk just about uh, Dover Microsystems. That would be great. We'll do that for sure. We'll put that on the calendar. And I think it's something that more people need to hear about. Plus, we can. I'm sure there are lessons to be learned that we can take from what you've done so far when you were at Draper and with the startup. And we'll definitely build some success lessons into the story as we talk about it. Great. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jathy. You have so much to share, so much inspiration. The TED Talk is fantastic. Everyone should go check you out. On, I would assume they could just you uh, Google who says I can't look for your TED Talk. I'll make sure to post links, your foundation, and people can reach you that way. You and I will talk again soon. Okay, Sharon. Thank you. Thanks, Jathy. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening today. Tune in for our next episode. And in the meantime, you can get more resources at www.c-suiteresults.com. Make it a successful day. Like what you just heard, visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.